Section 6 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. Brain and Personality, or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hanna Thompson. Section 6. The Faculty of Speech Continued. It should be noted, first of all, that no part of the human brain has any original, that is, native connection, with the gift of speech. The material seat or region of the brain of this great faculty comes always as an acquired change in the brain, for no one ever was born with it. Hence, at birth, speech has no place or locality whatever in either hemisphere. We may even go so far as to say that if the distinguishing fact about man is that he is a speaking animal, this is not owing to the structure of his brain, for not only has the chimpanzee just the same convolutions which man has for speech, but like the chimpanzee, man has the same convolutions in pairs, that is, in both hemispheres, and yet man uses only one of these pairs for speech while the same set of convolutions in his other hemisphere is no more used for speech than either pair is used for that purpose by the chimpanzee. If, therefore, the word faculty was an original endowment of those word areas in man on account of their particular construction, those areas being just alike in each hemisphere, then both hemispheres would be used for speech, Instead of this being the case, the entire word mechanism in all its parts is found in only one of the two hemispheres, while the other hemisphere remains wordless for life. With the great majority of persons, the speech centers are located exclusively in the left hemisphere. It is a part of the left superior temporal convolution which hears words. It is a part of the left angular gyrus which sees words and it is the left brocus convolution which utters words. In all such persons, the corresponding places in the right hemisphere are not speech areas at all. It would be natural to infer from all this that the left brain is organized differently from the right brain as far as the supreme endowment is concerned. But it is not so, for the good reason that in some persons the speech centers are in the right brain alone and it is their left brains which are the wordless ones. Moreover, such persons are not a whit inferior to the others in everything which language demands. Therefore, again, it is not brain structure, nor organization, nor locality, nor brain cells or fibers, nor any similar thing which is the first cause of word-making. That first cause is something wholly different, namely an agency, or rather agent, which visits these brain localities, and finding them originally entirely unfamiliar with a single word of any kind, proceeds by a long and incessant repetition process of teaching, to fashion those particles of gray matter to do what he proposes, here to receive words and there to utter words. How he manages to do this is revealed by his original reason for choosing the left brain in most persons, but in others not the left, but the right brain. The facts which led to the discovery of the first steps in the formation of the word mechanism in man were that it was noted that when sudden paralysis occurs on one side of the body, 
if it be the right side which is paralyzed the side which is governed by the left brain motor or uttering speech is also very commonly affected the reason for this is that broca's convolution which contains the center for motor speech as we have already explained is situated in that part of the cortex which is called the motor area because from that area proceed those excitations of muscular movements which are of a voluntary kind a powerful spurt of blood from a ruptured cerebral artery may so tear the brain tissue as to involve these motor centers or the fibers leading from them and in doing so frequently involves broca's convolution among the rest post-mortem examinations fully confirm this statement meanwhile as the right hemisphere is then found to be quite unaffected including the right broca's convolution it is plain that the loss of speech is due exclusively to the injury to the left hemisphere on the other hand while loss of speech ordinarily accompanies right-sided but not left-sided paralysis some cases have been reported in which it accompanied left-sided and not right-sided paralysis in time more of these cases were published along with the significant post-mortem findings of damage to the right instead of the left broca's convolution in other instances in patients who with left-sided paralysis and loss of motor speech had also showed word blindness during life not only the right broca's convolution but the region of the right angular gyrus was likewise found damaged as the corresponding places in the left hemisphere were intact it followed that in these persons the speech centers were in the right brain and not in the left it was not long before this seemingly curious anomaly found its explanation which is that right-sided paralysis with loss of speech occurs in right-handed people and left-sided paralysis with loss of speech occurs in persons who have been left-handed in life in other words the faculty of speech is located in the hemisphere which governs the hand which is most used hand and speech therefore are physiologically connected this remarkable fact brings us back to the origin to the very beginning of this wonderful faculty of expression in man it began by one personality longing to communicate with others and the first thing which he did then as every human being still does when endeavoring to communicate with those whose vocal speech he does not know was to make gestures with his hands gesture language therefore was the first language and few persons are aware how much gesture language still continues in living use this is particularly noticeable among all peoples who have no written language but even among the most civilized whole races are characterized by the number and variety of their gestures while speaking quite as much as their vocabulary a non-gesculating frenchman is as uncommon as a taciturn frenchman one has to learn two languages among the arabs for nothing can exceed the expressiveness and piquancy of those gestures by which they often more than double the meaning of their words the important place which gesture language holds among primitive peoples is well illustrated by the following anecdote dr walter roth in the preface to his ethnological studies of the northwestern queensland australia aborigines says 
I was out on horseback with some blacks when one of the boys riding by my side suddenly asked me to halt, as a mate of his in front was after some emus, consisting of a hen-bird and her young progeny, as there had been apparently to me no communication whatsoever between the boy in front and the one close to me, separated as they were by a distance of quite one hundred and fifty yards, I naturally concluded that my informant was uttering a falsehood, and told him so in pretty plain terms, with the result that after certain mutual recriminations he explained, on his hands, how he had received his information, the statement to be shortly afterwards confirmed by the arrival of the lad himself with the dead bird and some of the young in question. I afterwards found that there is an actual well-defined sign language which extends through the entire northwestern districts of Queensland. Among our staid Anglo-Saxons, a preacher like Whitfield moved his audience more by what they saw him do with the muscles of his face and of his hands than by the words he uttered, for those words we have in his printed sermons, and we wonder at the effect they had on his hearers. His voice certainly could not account for the whole difference. As inspection of the frontispiece plate shows in what close proximity to the area governing the movements of the hand and the motor region of the brain are the centers which preside over the movements of the muscles of the face, of the lips, and of the tongue. A common and associated action of these parts, therefore, would be much more natural than between the muscles of the face, for example, and those of the leg. We can then see how readily facial expression, lending itself to gesture and attempts at communication, would seek the cooperation of lips and tongue for vocal sounds, soon to become words because of the human mind back of the sounds. This last element of mind, as we will note later, is indispensable, because otherwise the sounds would have remained forever only like those of an anthropoid ape. But as the right hand is the oftenest used for every purpose, so it is of the two hands the oftenest used for gesture, which means, of course, for language. As soon as other parts were sought for to cooperate with gesture and language, the appeal would necessarily be to the neighboring centers in the left brain, and not by crossing the corpus callosum bridge to the corresponding centers in the other hemisphere. It would not be long, therefore, before the habit became settled to use only parts in the left brain for this specialized work, until finally the habit became fixed for life. Why some people are left-handed we do not know. The discussion on the origin of right-handedness and left-handedness comes down to us from ancient times and is ever renewed. Scarcely a month passes without it being all threshed out again in our medical journals. But the primary connection of the hand with the fashioning of the word mechanism in the human brain is conclusively settled by the location of that mechanism in the right hemisphere in left-handed persons. Whence, therefore, the impulses mostly proceed for using the particular hand in question settles both to what cerebral places words are to go and from what places they are to come. So far we have been led by anatomical facts. Thus Broca's convolution is no more a theory than a finger is, for it is a definite material thing. But what makes Broca's convolution talk? evidently not simply because it is Broca's convolution, because there is another Broca's convolution within the same cranium 
which does not talk. This question, which really concerns the origin of human speech, is not best answered by studying speech in children and noting how they begin. Many reasoners go astray here because with preconceived views about the automatic origin of words, which children are supposed to learn by imitation, they wholly ignore the anatomical brain changes which are necessary to make speech and what it is which causes them. If they are studied, it will then appear that these anatomical changes cannot possibly be of automatic origin, but rather must be the effects and results of purpose. The best age, therefore, for starting this investigation is when the subject begins to learn to read. The ability to read constitutes an important department of language, and no human race has yet been found which cannot be taught to read if the attempt be made early enough in life. Thus Bishop Hale of Perth, Western Australia, in his Aborigines of Australia, mentions that a shepherd, Adams, has taken to wife a native woman who had been brought up at some settler station and was partially educated. Adams could not read, and the black wife taught the white husband to read. It is no longer doubtful that every race of man can be educated to know anything, from reading and writing to mathematics, philosophy, and political economy. In other words, man is always and everywhere man, and infinitely distant in mind from every ape. Some early anthropologists were mistaken enough to say that certain races of men were too low in the scale to be able to count above five the number of their fingers, and they cited some tribes among the Australian savages as examples. We need only quote the following as to the actual facts. Mr. James Dawson, in his Australian Aborigines, published in Melbourne in 1881, records the following remarkable evidence. The inspection of the Aboriginal school in Rahamayuk in Gippsland during the past eleven years gets a percentage of results higher than the other state, white, schools in Victoria, and while no doubt this excellence is largely due to the regularity with which the children attend school and to the skill and zeal of the gentlemen who teach them, it fairly shows that Aboriginal children are at least equal to others in power of learning those branches of education which are taught in the state schools of Victoria. On several occasions of examination by a government inspector, the percentage of the Ryamayuk school was a hundred, a result unparalleled by any other school in the colony. Footnote. See article The Position of the Australian Aborigines and the Scale of Human Intelligence by the Honorable J. Mildred Creed in the 19th Century Magazine, January 1905. End footnote. Now, no one can imagine that learning to read can be automatic. It requires instead the most persevering attention and application for many months. Over and over again, the pictures of the separate letters have to be identified so as to be distinguished from one another, and then their combination into words successively mastered till the word symbol and its meaning are simultaneously recognized. This process of brain shaping has to be done piece by piece or layer by layer so that some persons become word-blind without being letter-blind, but a less spontaneous cerebral act than this can scarcely be conceived. 
If it is not wholly the doing of what we call will, then what is it? But the most pregnant fact about this process of learning to read is that by the constant repetition of the will-directed effort to see the letter and word pictures, an actual modification of gray matter results in a limited portion of the visual area so that it can do what no other gray matter anywhere can do, see and recognize words. Here, surely, we come upon a most impressive fact, namely that by constant repetition of a given stimulus, we can effect a permanent anatomical change in our brain stuff, which will add a specific and remarkable cerebral function to that place, which it never had before, and which, therefore, it could not have had either originally or spontaneously. This material change must be there, though no microscope will ever detect it, or identify the English reading from the French reading cells, and one who can read both languages. But yet there it must be, or a blood cot or an umbrella tip could not destroy it. But this material change was not effected easily. Rather, it came only by laborious and long-continued work spent on that collection of gray matter, and work by something which must be wholly extraneous to the gray matter itself. It is absurd to suppose that any other areas of the cortex, which cannot of themselves recognize a letter or word, are the teachers of the cells in the angular gyrish which do the reading. It is the conscious personality alone which does this work, and no better proof of this is needed to show that such must be the process than when, in later years, a student learns to read Greek, Latin, and French as did Dr. Henschelwood's patient above cited, when that man separately studied those three languages in addition to his childhood's speech, his consciousness and his will certainly cooperated in prolonged exercise until wholly distinct portions of his gray matter were fashioned, one for Greek, another for Latin, and another for French words, each so divided from each other and from the earlier English stratum that they were respectively differently affected by the damage which involved this word area. We must here pause in our discussion, because we have come to a great principle which goes to the foundation of everything nervous, from the nervous system of a polyp up to the brain of a philosopher. That principle is this, that a stimulus to nervous matter affects a change in that matter by calling forth a reaction in it. This change may be exceedingly slight after the first stimulus, but each repetition of the stimulus increases the change, with its following specific reaction, until by constant repetition a permanent alteration in the nervous matter stimulated occurs, which produces a fixed habitual way of working in it. In other words, the nervous matter acquires a special way of working that is a function by habit. We will find this principle constantly illustrated and operative in many ways as we proceed. But what concerns us now is that already, from the facts which we have been reviewing, we arrive at one of the most important of all conclusions, namely that the gray layer of our brains is actually plastic and capable of being fashioned. It need not be left with only the slender equipment of functions which nature gives it at birth. Instead, it can be fashioned artificially, that is, by education, 
so that it may acquire very many new functions or capacities, which never come by birth nor by inheritance, but which can be stamped upon it as so many physical alterations in its proplasmic substance. All this is demonstrated beyond cavil by the textual brain changes which the acquired and not congenital function of speech depends upon. This well-demonstrated truth is of far-reaching significance, because it gives an entirely new aspect to the momentous subject of education. Most persons conceive of education vaguely as only mental, a training of the mind as such, with small thought that it involves physical changes in the brain itself, ere it can become real and permanent. But we have seen that different forms of education, as perfect examples of education as can be named, are ultimately dependent upon the sound condition of certain portions of the gray matter which have been educated for each work. Thus to read music requires a great deal of education, and an apoplectic clot may instantly deprive a person of a laboriously gained power to read music, or such an accident may spoil every other kind of reading, and yet leave the music-reading place unharmed. What a burden of school-days arithmetic was everyone remembers, but in those same days figures were deeply engraved in some part of the angular gyrus, so that, as in the case mentioned on page 99, when all other reading cells were ruined, they remained as clear as ever for their owner's use. Or again, they may be spoiled while the reading of music notes remains. So writing, which heretofore has been regarded as a form of Broca's convolution work, because usually when this convolution is damaged, speech by mouth and speech by hand are both abolished, very probably has a center of its own, since cases are reported where the individual could not speak but could write. Some investigators claim to have identified the writing center in a part of the motor area above Broca's convolution. Footnote. Professor C. K. Mills, American Journal of the Medical Sciences, September 1904. End footnote. From all this, it follows that the brain must be modified by every process of true special education. A skilled violinist can play upon his instrument as easily as another can read a book. But how did he acquire such an accomplishment? Without doubt, by actually fashioning a special violin center in his brain, as reading cells are fashioned, by the same laborious iteration of exercise of those particular brain cells, until they had to become violin music cells. And so with every handicraft. Instances which prove this have been reported of mechanics who, after an apoplectic attack, have had their right hand suddenly but permanently lose its cunning, while but little else or nothing seemed to be lost. Meantime, one fact about the plasticity of the matter of the human brain cortex, in other words, its educatability, is that its plasticity diminishes progressively with age. This is much more evident with certain brain functions than with others, but is particularly the case with the acquisition of language. Children under ten years of age acquire languages by the ear very easily. That is, the gray matter of their word centers is very plastic, and can soon be fashioned for that purpose. But what is gained easily is lost easily. 
for if a child at that age be removed to another country where he no longer hears the language which he has learned he generally forgets it totally in less than two years on the other hand many cases are reported of children becoming aphasic just as adults do by the onset of right-sided paralysis with the destruction of the left broca's convolution and yet they gradually learn to talk again in much the same fashion in which they acquired speech at first that they do this by educating the centers in the right brain is proved by parallel cases of the supervention afterwards of total aphasia when left-sided paralysis was added to their former right-sided paralysis i e by a second injury involving the right centers facts of this kind have led some writers to draw the erroneous conclusion that both hemispheres are concerned in speech so that if the word centers of one side are injured those of the other hemisphere can come to the patient's help the chief argument for their position is the transitory character of loss of speech in certain persons affected with aphasia in a few weeks they recover their ability to read or speak as the case may be and it is therefore argued that they do so by help from the centers in the unaffected hemisphere but it does not seem to occur to these reasoners that if so then every case of aphasia from injury in one hemisphere should soon be recovered from by the aid of the other hemisphere but the facts are that in a great majority of cases in adults if the aphasia does not improve within a few months certainly within a year it never improves my shrewd patient who retained his arithmetic so well took many a lesson for six years with all the assiduity of an industrious schoolboy and yet he never got back a word in his left angular gyrus nor in his left brocus convolution nor of course in the right word centers the most probable explanation of temporary aphasia and recovery or improvement from it is that the sudden injury causes a shock and thus paralysis of the word centers but not complete disorganization of them so that in time they regain their function rather than that the structures in the other hemisphere which had not for years been taught a word of english any more than of chinese should in a few weeks be able to read or speak the older the patient is the more hopeless the case simply because the unaffected word areas in the other hemisphere have passed the time of life when the gray matter is plastic enough to be fashioned for any new complex function a healthy man after forty scarcely ever learns a new language well after fifty such instances are of the rarest and at seventy the best that can be expected is the mastery of a very few foreign phrases and badly pronounced at that we need not dwell further on this subject for it is simply in keeping with the facts connected with any other mental acquirement which comes only by education a physician needs many years to get his education and who would expect him at fifty or sixty to become a civil engineer our study of the cerebral relations of the faculty of speech serves one purpose at least namely that of revealing the great fact that man can be educated and does educate himself by modifying his brain for that purpose it is this fact which makes man what he is man 
but for the purpose of our discussion it is so important to be able to recognize clearly how our brain matter can be made to acquire wholly new functions and according to what fundamental principles of nervous physiology it does so that we must for the present diverge from the subject of education to that of the great laws governing all nervous development above everything else modern science is indebted to the recognition of the principle of evolution as the chief guide to the understanding of the deeper problems of life by this is meant that all life development and certainly all nervous development has been orderly which in turn means that from the beginning however low to the end however high certain fundamental laws continuously operate we therefore can best unravel the most complex forms by studying the commencement in the slightest forms well assured that if we never drop the line of continuity it will be our clue through the most intricate passages of our search we will then find that as we approach the subject of the brain of man in its relation to thought by another route entirely than that which we have been following namely by the route which leads from below upwards we will arrive all the more certainly at the conclusions to which we have been so far tending with all the added confirmation given by the convergence of independent lines of research we proceed therefore in the next chapter to the consideration of the great laws which preside over the evolution of a nervous system end of section six